From Carry the Load, these are lessons from the front. Stories of service and sacrifice from our military, veterans, first responders, and their families. If you've never thought of taking your own life, you might be in the minority. If you've gotten to the point where you put a pistol in your mouth, yet you're able to listen to this podcast, you're definitely in the minority. By his own admission, Nathan Burrow was a pot-smoking teenager who was not interested in anything but the next high until he found himself tending to the dead and wounded on the battlefields of Iraq. As a combat medic, he saw things you don't want to see. As a discharged veteran dealing with his own injuries, he found himself in a place no one ever imagines. I'm Todd Bowding, host of Lessons from the Front. September is Suicide Awareness Month, and you're about to hear the story of a survivor. If you or anyone you know is suffering from these thoughts, please know that you're not alone in your struggles. A national lifeline was recently established. You can reach it by dialing 988. Please, it's okay to not be okay. Now, here's my conversation with Army medic, Nathan Burrow. I'm from San Diego, grew up with a big, large group of friends. It was just me and my older brother, and um, nothing, like, odd about my life, you know? Yeah. Pretty pretty simple life, just a bunch of reckless kids, you know, playing football, basketball, riding bikes, skateboards, whatever was cool, you know, what we thought was cool. And then, um, what was it? And I think I was a freshman in, in high school when we saw 9-11 happen. And uh, what was it to me? Nothing really. People, I had no connection with it, mm-hmm. you know. And so um, I remember, uh, you know, I remember graduating high school, just just a pothead, you know, just not really doing much with my life. It was, you know, just hanging out, working at a grocery store kind of thing and went to college for like a semester, dropped out. You know, not my thing. Did construction for like a year. And then my best friend who always wanted to be in the army, like I never thought about being in the military ever. It was just never like something I really like desired. It wasn't that my dad told me no or anything like that. Um, You know, I come from a family of military. Just never like piqued my interest, really. We always played like guns and airsoft and paintball and it was fun, but it just like I never thought about it. And then my best friend was like, you know, I'm going to go to Iraq. It was during, what, 2007, so that's a big surge. Yes. A big push with General Petraeus. And um, like I said, I was just like a loser pothead. So I was like, all right, I'll just go with you. You know, what else am I doing with my life? Loser pothead is, is a little strong. I, I Seriously, I had nothing going for my life. I had no no education. I, I The only thing that I knew was how to, like, lay hardwood floor. But even in that, I mean, it was like— it was just money to to smoke more pot, you know. It was it was nothing that I was doing in life to like better my society, to help other people, to to engage in generosity, to engage in anything really. Like I just I was a loser, you know. I, I had nothing going on in my life. So I went there and you know, they were like, Hey, you wanna take the ASVAP in twenty minutes? Okay. You know, went down there, took it. Luckily, I scored really high. I guess that was kind of smart. And then they were like, okay, what do you want to do? And I was like, well, you know, nobody ever gives, you know, nobody ever makes fun of a medic. 
I was like, I'll be a medic, you know? Nobody ever makes fun of a medic, so I'll be a medic. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's like there's certain jobs in the military that don't always go the best. You know, infantry and medic is like nobody ever talks down to you. You know, it's hey, uh, <laughs> let me let me tell you something. Our our Marines, man, they would they would protect those docks. Yeah, yeah, I've, I've always no had had very always been very well taken care of. Well, kind of take me back to your time in service. Is there is there one defining moment from your time in service that you look at and go, that's me. That's who I am. If I'm going to resonate with one point in time in my service, that's it. It's kind of a... I find it's pretty challenging because I have like two very distinct parts. One is combat, and then after my injury is coming back and getting to work in And it was something I really desired. I just, I loved the fact that I could go in and, you know, see the trauma of everyday life. Like, I love working trauma. It's just when you go into an ER or on a battlefield, like, who knows what's going to happen? And the amount of injury and stuff that comes through. But... I guess like the epitome of when I kind of look at it is the fact that to be called doc, it, it, it's a, it's a rite of passage. You know, I was just PFC Burrow when I went to Iraq. And then when I came back, I was doc because you have to prove your worth. You know, there's a lot of medics out there that you know, don't, unfortunately, you know, they, you know, people freeze up on the battlefield. People can't handle their job sometimes. And so for me, it was something that was, you know, the rite of passage to be honored into that um, so-called Hall of Fame. For me, you know, it was something that I really uh, was very proud of, to have a combat medical badge, to to be able to sit there and come home with the, the guys that I helped keep safe and take care of, you know, for over a year. So I understand war in the sense that two men fight. That makes a lot of sense to me. We disagree on something, we go and fight for what we want. But when you bring women and children into it and the the nastiness that happens in that, that's where I um I had a really, really hard time with it. It caused you know, caused me to go into a huge mental breakdown and stuff. You mentioned specifically the women and the children and the innocent. The innocent and the innocence of war. Obviously, you saw some of that to the point where it, it shook you up a little bit. Um, can you describe that at all, the scenario or the feeling? or You know, there's, when people, I remember going back home and, you know, going through a lot of counseling, it was probably five years of counseling. I do it every off, every now and again when, you know, it just, it flares up a lot, but, um, just talking with them and people are like, well, you, ha- you did what you had to do. And I'm always like, you don't know what you're talking about. You know, I'm like, you don't know that position that you're in, you know, that I did what I did to stay alive. I wanted to go home. You know, is everything that I did I'm proud of? No. You know, there's times you act out in anger. There's times you act out in fear. You, know? you, you mean when you got home? When you, you say there's there's things that um, you did when you I'm, got home that you weren't proud of. No, the way on you on the battlefield, yeah, on the battlefield. You know, there's times where you just have hesit- hesitancy, or 
you know, who do I help in that moment? Because somebody has to die, you know, as a medic. is like, do I help that guy, that guy, that guy, this kid over here, that woman over there, you know? And you have to make those decisions, and, and you make it, and then you live with, you know, the, and you, and you the Survivor's little... Guild the rest of your life, you know? And so, um, you know, when it comes with the women and children, I think what, what bothered me a lot was after a while, I, you know, going over into a foreign country like that, I realized really quickly, you know, we had a lot of young guys. I was a young guy. Um, how, how old were you? It was, uh, I was what? 20, 20, 20 and 21. Sorry. Um, yeah, I was 20 and 21. So, uh, I went over there as 20, had my birthday there, 21. And then, um, but yeah, so you have a lot of young guys and they go over there and they're really excited to do something, you know? And I remember just going over there and being like, how can a little kid be so comfortable just running up to a foreign tank? And just screaming at you, throwing stuff at you, like all this stuff. And I'm like, these people have been at war for a very long time. Like I come over here and all this is brand new. And to them, this is normal life. This kid has never seen life without enemy tanks, you know, trucks of soldiers and people kicking in their doors and, and bombs going off just in local neighborhoods and stuff. Like that's just normal life. But to see the way that, like, human degradation takes place in that, how they stop valuing human life and they value whatever they value, I don't know. It's They being the bad guys? Yeah, you know, if it's, you know, religion or money or, you know, status, it doesn't matter, right? It, 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 all, it all really kind of narrowed down to the fact that human life was not important anymore. I remember one of my infantry friends telling me, he's like, dude, I went over there to kill people. You went over there to help people. And it kind of helped me put back into context, like sometimes why I felt like I had such a hard time with it. But yeah, it was just, you know, you find some really, really disturbing things. You know, we would find torture chambers and rape rooms. And I mean, you're talking fingernails and concrete kind of thing. And, you know, I remember little kids taking us these places and they're just ready to pee their pants kind of thing because they're so scared of what's going on and these families just being ripped apart like it's not i couldn't even imagine trying to raise my kids there one of the things that that i know you as a medic have to be i mean you, you already referenced it do i treat my own or do i treat this innocent bystander I've got a relationship with him. There's a tribal nature to that. But there's a human nature to this one. Did you ever find yourself in a situation where treating the human element first, sacrifice the tribal element? Um, n- not usually. And I would say solely because usually the tribal element takes precedence because that's what allows me to treat the the human nature side of it. I, I have to keep my own men safe and secure because when one guy gets hurt, it affects the mindset of all, you know, say there's 30 guys. All, the, the other 29 are in, 
are are stepping into a place of despair. You know, not that they're weak or anything like that, but it's starting to you start stressing your mind out because all of a sudden this became real. This became very real. You know, you have all these young guys like you just you have that mindset of like I'm gonna live forever. Like we're gonna fight and we're gonna fight good. You know, but man, when somebody's legs are blown off or you know somebody's screaming and and it, you know there's just a lot of blood and the smells and what's going on and the radio kicks up and it's just it's chaos. You know you. You make a plan, you draw a line, you step over, it's about as far as your plan goes. But when it comes to, like, the civilian side, I have to keep these guys safe and healthy and, and strong because I can't help those people if that's not in place. Please explain to everybody what the triage is. Well, triage always comes with, you know, it's not a first-come, first-served. Now, that happens when you have one injury, right? Mm -hmm. It's first come, first serve. And I have no problem dealing with that. But when you have multiple injuries across the board, you know, a Humvee gets hit with an IED, EFP. Who's the first one you help? You know, usually it's the side of the vehicle that's not getting shot, right? Or it's the side of the vehicle that I can get into, or something like that. But a triage naturally is who's worse, who's the worst person that I can, that is, is that I can adamantly save, you know, in the, in the grotesqueness of it, if somebody was, you know, they had spilled their guts or something like that, like you have to make the decision of, is that person savable? And sometimes that, you know, you have to just say, I think this person's going to die and I'm going to move on. Now, what do you do when that's your own people? And you have other people around you that don't agree with that. You know, that's where triage becomes very difficult. You know, sometimes you work on somebody who's dead because you want your guys to see you working on them. Sometimes you, you know, you have to kind of. That's hard. It's very hard, but it it shows them that I'm I'm not going to give up. I'll work I'll work until I pass it on to a doctor or a PA or who, you know the surgeon, whichever base we're close to, and whatever next level of care. It's a, it's an echelon of care. Did you ever find yourself in a situation where that person that you're referencing, you knew they were going to be dead? There's just I mean, in your medical assessment opinion, you knew they weren't going to make it but they were obviously still alive and you, you chose to help the person next to them because you knew by taking quick action with them, they could survive. Did you find yourself in that scenario ever? When you look at something like that, consciously in my mind, have I made it? Yes. But have I ever shown somebody else that not usually because there's so much stress in it. Don't have time to talk about it. In general, I just don't want them to know because it's a friend. It's, you know, it's somebody they've been really close to. They live with those guys all the time, share everything in life. Infantry guys are, they're weird. You know, they have a different level of bond. (laughs) I can uh, can relate to that. Yeah. You know, you, you, it truly is a brotherhood, you know, and you really, really have to respect that. It's like, I'm not in that brotherhood. I'm attached to it. Now, they bring me in to a certain extent, but in all in all, they have their own brotherhood. And I have to respect that when they see this. 
brother yet, or I, I, I can't just put something aside unless it's so traumatic that everybody just kind of accepts that, you know, and it's, it's, I mean, that level of trauma is very, very difficult to deal with, but it's not as common as you would think. Mm-hmm. Most of the time it's blown off by a or some kind of like amputation or some really severe lacerations, but the level of resiliency that they have in those moments, especially when, you know, seeing other guys that are hurt really bad and they're, they don't even care about themselves. They're going to help their friends because they can hear it. They know it. It's just, it's a second nature to them. So yeah, you know, there, you have those moments of darkness that you really don't want to make that decision. Like God, please don't make me make this decision. Make it. Trust you. So, so you and your unit, y'all were right in the middle of the surge in 2007 in Iraq, correct? Yeah, so we got there in November of 2007. This is in 2008 Did we go on the southeast side of Sadr City, and we pretty much built the wall along all of Sadr City on the southeast side. I think it was like a 30-foot it was a really tall barrier. We would go out there almost every night, putting up these huge concrete walls to pretty much just hold that militia there. And how many men did y'all lose on that deployment? Specifically, like in my company, we didn't lose any. We had a good amount of injuries. Uh, there were others that, you know, we lost them over time. And that for the, for the, who am I carrying? It was a gentleman who, you know, succumbed to the wounds later on in life. But I think it was like seven for our, was that battalion? Sorry, it's been what? It's been a long time. I forget some of the terms sometimes, you know, I'm like, it was, I feel like, I know I can remember those memories like it was yesterday, but then you come back to the terminology. I think our battalion lost like seven guys. But we had really changed the way we we did warfare over there because the guys were replaced. I think they lost, like, they went home with seven dudes. I remember that. Seven. Yeah. It was really bad. And that's when General Petraeus took over. So we changed everything. We went very um, humanitarian in the ways that we approached warfare. And I think that had great benefit. So we've, we've talked about a lot of the horrors. Take me in the exact opposite direction. What was, Tell me about something you saw that, that really kind of gave you hope, uh, where you saw the humanitarian side of, of humanity. Oh, yeah. I mean, you take the most violent men in the world, and they would go to a school and spend all day there making sure that little kids and women could get an education. They'll risk their life every day for months on end. But nobody will hurt them. I mean, you're talking rockets fired at them, people shooting at them, blowing them up, all kinds of stuff. And they go there with a good attitude, and they get care packages, and they take extra stuff from their care packages, and they go and give it to those those people. You know, they go and give it to these single moms and, and these little kids, you know. Like, I always ask my dad, I'm like, send me big bags of dum-dum pops. I loved being able to give out lollipops, you know. It was just, I don't know, it was always my thing, you know. 
was always like, Doc, what do you got in one of your one of your things? And I, you know, open it up and beef jerky or a Twix or something. You know, they always make fun of me because they carry extra ammo and I always had goodies, you know. <laughs> I was, I'm like a munchy fiend. I love candy. So, um, but yeah, you just, you, you take these men that are just like, I just want to just be violent, you know, because that's like what they're signing up for. They're signing up to go to war. They're signing up to prove their manhood. And then you set this little kid in front of them. and say, go hand out backpacks with school supplies. Well, and, and I would say that that's because part of manhood is, is being a good man. Is gentleness. Yeah. I, I think gentleness is the demonstration of strength. And knowing when you need to be violent, when you don't, and it, a lot in life, you know, I always tell tell my son this. I'm like, there's a time where we fight, but most of the time, our strength is displayed in our gentleness and being able to control it, and not just, you know, be carnal, be ravaged, you know, all these crazy things that, you know, clubbing my wife and taking her to the cave, you know, we're beyond those days, you know, of of how we handle things, you know, and so to come in there and and watch all these young men come into a battlefield, but then it's like, hey, we need to go help these men and these these women and children. There's just something special about it, you know. It was, it was okay, I, I'm here doing something. You know, I'm doing something important because the grown men in this country at this moment aren't willing to do it. It's a sad place to be, you know, when your own grown men would rather throw that aside and you need a foreign army to come in and do that. That's the honor that I, I really do believe in in America, you know, and what being an American stands for. Because I don't, I don't agree with any of their, you know, politics or their, you know, just the way, their, their way of life, their, the, the culture behind it and the way they treat women and children and stuff like that. But what, um, but it doesn't matter. My role is to be a protector. And so that's what I do. You mentioned earlier about, um, when you became Doc, do you remember that moment? Do you do you was there a specific point in time where you went, you know, whether you're you're working on on somebody on the battlefield, back at the uh, the camp? Do you remember going, I'm Doc? Uh, yeah, yeah. It was, it's actually, you know, I feel I, I remember some snippets from it. So. I came in pretty late into my group of guys. And so I was like a floater medic and we had created a, another platoon from three or four other platoons. I think it was three platoons. We created like a fourth platoon. Okay. So guys from every platoon went and made another one. I was kind of that floater medic. And so we had a, a very you know violent area to cover. So we kind of had to break up a bit more to, to have better ground coverage. But, um, yeah, I remember just, you know, the first time I was in an IED attack and it was like, you know, our LT. It wasn't even my LT. I was covering down for somebody. LT being your lieutenant. Yeah, he rides in the second vehicle. I usually ride in the last vehicle. I remember they came and picked me up and they put me in the second vehicle. I'm like, no, give me the hell out of this vehicle. Like, I don't want to be in this vehicle. I don't belong in this vehicle. This vehicle, everybody dies in this vehicle. I don't want to be there. So, you know, 20 minutes later, boom. You know, and I just remember going up to the vehicle, trying to pry the door open. And there's, you know, people are shooting and say, I'm like, I don't know what's going on. You know, I'm just like, there's so much adrenaline. You're just so out of your element. I'm like, I, it just feels like a movie. Well, okay, hold, hold on. Because I, I want to explore that for a minute. Take me through your mindset 
take take me. I mean, so you're in the very last vehicle. The IED goes off, hits the second vehicle, the one that you didn't want to be in, because that's yeah. typically what they would do is let that first vehicle go through. Yeah, hit. So when that happens, and the uh, the shooting starts around you, are you even paying attention to that, or are you just <laughs> running past all the other vehicles between you and number two? So there's like a split second where you know it's like boom, it gets hit, and you're like, okay, did they miss? Did anybody get hurt? And then, like I said, that radio comes on. It's like our whole plan for the day ruined, right? You know, the radio starts going on. We've been hit. Okay, who's hit? Like, what's going on? Like, is somebody hurt? You know, what? what is, what's the problem? You know, because, you know, sometimes those vehicles are pretty spaced far apart right. so that, you know, you're not hitting two vehicles at once and stuff like that. And then when somebody gets hit, you know, they kind of break off into these different directions to, to cover different cordons of fire. And so... um you know, as I'm I'm sitting there, I'm on the radio, you know, I have my headset on. I'm in the back of a, I think it was an MRAP at the time. So the door is like this slow, like elevator opening door. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like, I have to wait for that door to open. And I'm like, is this like saving Private Ryan? The door comes down and we just all get mowed. You know, Is that literally sh- going through your head? Well, I, absolutely. You know, it's like every time we let it down, I'm like, it's, mm, you know, this giant metal door. It goes down slow. So it's like, okay, you know, so I'm I'm waiting and it's like, okay, I don't. There's some there's some gunfire and stuff like that, and you're like, okay, okay, we're waiting. Okay, it's time to go, Doc. Like, we need help. You know, and you hear medic and medic and stuff like that. Okay. At that point, I just kind of, like, black out. I'm like, they do what they do. These men go from from being on guard to being violent at that point. And so my job, I do the same thing that they do until somebody gets hurt. Somebody's hurt, my job changes. So at that point, you know, I just, I, I black out from that kind of like, I don't need to do that job. They're very, very, they're desiring to do that job. They, I mean, they love doing it. They love getting in firefights. Like it's their joy of life. And so I'm just like, okay, you know, I trust them. I don't have a choice. You know what I mean? Like this is, everything rides on this. I need to go and do this. This is my only responsibility in the army is to not, screw this up and so i just remember going there and i remember like getting the door open and one of the guys had already put a tourniquet on the guy's leg and um but it had broke was this the lieutenant yeah yeah some of the other guys they were hurt in the vehicle but nothing as severe as him so he's he's the passenger in the front and trying to get the door open it it almost had like welded shut from the bomb and everything and so we tried to really just rip it open and I just remember seeing like blood still squirting out. And so I, I had put tourniquets on both of them because they had broke. And so I have a different kind of tourniquet. It's a lot stronger that, um, you know, I, I reapplied. But I just remember in my brain, like just wanting to sit there and watch it because I've always enjoyed trauma, like just studying the human body. And I'm like, but oh, not, no. not because of the suffering. And I think that's no, really no, important. not at all. No, it's just, it's the, just... The, the biology of, of. Absolutely. I mean, it's just something you've never seen before. I'm like two human beings are blowing each other up. Like there's just stuff that comes with it. And so, and I just remember that split second, like this isn't education. This is time to do. And then they came over the radio and they're like, you know, what, what kind of casualty is it? Is it a routine? Is it urgent? And Lieutenant was like, I'm urgent surgical. And I just remember being like, yeah, he is, you know, it was like just kind of at that moment where I'm like, okay, you know, <laughs> like this is really happening. You know, I'm like, like let me break know. in. I'm yeah. urgent, damn it. Yeah. 
And it's like, you know, there's no like nine line or anything, or maybe somebody gave one. I don't, I don't know. I wasn't doing that. I was treating him. So. And, a, and a nine line brief for people who are listening is, is a, is a way to call in uh, helicopters to land, to pick up the, uh, the casualty. Yeah. At that point. Cause I think they ended up having another bomb on the other side of the street that they tried to hit the other platoon that came to help us. Cause we had to just pretty much ditch the vehicle and we, you know, we loaded him up and, uh, you know, took him out of there. But, you know, that was kind of like that awe-inspiring moment of, of, you know, bringing him into the, I just remember he, you know, I, I think one of them was, can I keep my leg? And I said, yes, but eventually he ended up, I think, amputating it because it was just better for him. Mm-hmm. Um, am I going to die? And of course, as a man, you know, is everything okay? Down yes. There? yes. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, I remember just checking, checking that and being like, you're good, bro. You know? And he's like, okay, I'm ready to live, you know? And it's, it just. But that know. that's probably an incredibly psychological lifting. I mean, you know, you're, you're in the oh, middle yeah. of all this, this <laughs> tragedy, you're going to lose your legs. You're thinking, okay, not good. But if I still have my ability to reproduce as a human being, then I still got my man card fully intact. Yeah, big time, you know. And I, I always tell, like, when I would train new medics, I'm like, outside of, of you know, they call it like H-A-B-C-H, which is deal with hemorrhaging, airway, breathing, circulation, and then check hemorrhaging again. And I'm like, somewhere in there, you know, there's like a G. You're going to check the junk, you know. It's like... Just reach down there and just give it a squeeze. He'll know, you know, like just palm it and say it's still there. You know, nothing's falling off. Everything's good, you know, and yeah, you got gloves on or whatever. But in that moment, it's so there's such an intimateness, you know, you're going to cut them, cut all their clothes off. Anyways. Yeah, that's that's like, one of those things you don't see in the manuals. No, no, not at all. But I know as a man, like you're just really care about that. You know, it's a really yeah. sensitive area. Like, it's very important to you, you know. It, so I just, I, I I always recommend to new medics. I'm like, just check it real quick. Because you'll see a person that's really dying because they think it's gone. And they're just going to accept life and die because they don't want to die. You know, they don't want to live without it. And when you check it and you're like, you're good, bro. And it's like, being, you know, all those vitals start going back up. You know, they're they're doing better. So, you know, when, so. When, when I went through it was, it was... Start the breathing, stop the bleeding, protect the wound, and treat for shock. Maybe the treat for shock actually meant make sure the junk is still there. <laughs> Probably, yeah. You know, it, it, you do all these, like, swoops, you know, all over the body and everything. And, you know, sometimes you got to check up inside of them and stuff like that, you know, to check for pulsation and stuff like that. And you, There's nothing comfortable about that with a, sure. gr- with a grown man. And I'm sitting there talking to him. Hey, bud, you know. Go do all this stuff, and then you know, you try to talk with him after all of this has happened. You know, years go by, and I'm like, yeah, you know, I remember that. So you know, I don't know what he remembers, you know, but there's certain things that I remember that they have big effect. I yeah. I can see where that's just kind of a, I mean, there's a proud moment there, even though in you know you you've got this this unbelievable tragedy that's just unfolded you were able to be there for someone in their greatest time of need. And that's yeah. got to be, there's got to be a lot of self-gratification there. There is, you know, like I think in general, you're proud of yourself. I mean, I remember going home or not going home, but you know, going back to the base and the chaplain is like, you guys want to talk about anything? 
30 dudes. Oh, yeah, let's just open up about our feelings. Like, no, we want to go kill the people that did this. But I just remember that night just sleeping, trying to sleep. Just crying, like, a so overly emotional of, like, all the anxiety coming out and just, like, oh, man, like, that was really hard. I've, I've never seen something like that. I've never seen a body mangled like that. Car wrecks are really bad and all that stuff, but like somebody purposely put a bomb in a specific place, ran a wire, and they watched this vehicle go by and boom. So, you know, that was just, there's, there's both sides of it. There's so much emotion in it that it's like, you're just so overwhelmed. And finally I can just go and just, grow up and, you know, just and, and generally just be emotional and cry for a bit and just say, okay, like I got through it. I made it, you know, I, I think one of the biggest things I was so excited about was that he lived, you know, as a, as a medic, like you never want to have to deal with a, um, you never want to have to deal with a death. Obviously it's part of life. It's something that as a medic, you really deal with. But I was just really excited that he didn't die. So did you make it through the deployment yourself okay? Since I got out, no. I mean, I remember, you know, I was working a job, doing pretty well at it, you know, had made my promotions and stuff like that. And just, I just had a huge mental breakdown. I, I couldn't handle dealing with the things I didn't know how to deal with. You know, um, the ER was really hard. A lot of bad things happened, you know, in families. There's just trauma, you know, what happens to kids and stuff like that. You know, this is where you learn about abuses and stuff like that. And just, just a lot of horrible things. And it's like, I know how to treat it. I know how to help in those moments, but I didn't know how to deal with it beyond that. And um, unfortunately, the military's not in the business of, you know, long-term psychological care. They're, right. in, they're in the business of winning wars, you know, and protecting freedom kind of thing. Coming back was really, it was really hard. I had a hard time. I, I, I didn't connect with people. I, was, I really, you know, a lot of drinking, a lot of smoking. Um, a lot of womanizing, just, just, I was not a healthy person. I was not a good, a good man at that point because of what just war and trauma does to the mind. It really puts you in a very dark and disgusting place that if you don't deal with it, you only go deeper. And do you feel that the wiring inside of your head was off and that was a big part of it? I don't think it was off at all. I think it was a normal reaction to significant trauma. You know, it's, it's, you break your arm, you go get help, right? You break your mind, you got to go get help. Like who goes through those things and is just like, this is hunky dory. If they're like that, they're probably a psychopath. You know, they're probably like a mass murderer or something like that. You know, if those are normal things to somebody, that's, I don't see that as normal. You know what I mean? Um, obviously I live in a first world country and I, I live in America and it's, you know, I mean, food is, you know, 
not scarce. Water's not scarce. Electricity, internet, although I have everything I need and far, far more. So for me coming from that life to, you know, back into to normal life, I think it was a pretty normal reaction. My problem was that I just didn't deal with it. You know, I, I dealt with it with drugs and alcohol and, you know, just anger and it just kept getting worse. So, you know. So when you, when you came back, you, you essentially got a job doing the same thing, except in the civilian side, working in the, in the ER. Is that correct? No, I was still in the army. You were still in the army. Yeah. I spent three years uh, at Fort Irwin at the national training center. And went through, you know, a couple of years of physical therapy and stuff like that, you know, just off and on trying to figure out what was going on with my body and everything. And, you know, my dad had, he died within those three years. So just really like losing, it was like, that was like losing the internet, you know, for me, it was like my source of so much, you know, so you know, spending those three years, like I loved it. I I loved working in the ER because you just get to see so much stuff and have so much fun and everything. No, I never worked medical outside of the military. Um, I just really couldn't handle it anymore. My body couldn't handle it. Like I wanted to go to nursing school and stuff like that. That's kind of how I pre-prepped with college was for nursing school. But after after the injuries had just, they kept getting worse and worse and just having issues with memory and horrible migraines and just physical pain every day of my life, you know, to the point of where, you know, just fall over from pain or just my discs falling out of my spine and stuff like that. Like it just, it didn't, I couldn't do it anymore. I, I, I just, life had to change. I had to make some really, really drastic changes with my wife to, um, to stay alive. So your discs would fall out. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah, I would just, I remember one time sitting down doing a puzzle with my son and I reached forward to grab a a puzzle piece and just, I just felt them both come out. They just would bulge out and I just collapse on the ground. I'm, I'm not weightlifting. I'm not, you know, the other time I was, I swept some stuff up on my front porch and was scooping it up with a dustpan, three pounds maybe. And just, just, I just feel them slide out and just collapse to the ground, you know, just legs go numb and just horrible pain. And so can't work in a hospital like that i can't you know you can't do a lot of things like that you know it's it's most you know i'm a i'm a big guy you know i do a lot of physical things as a man i've always learned to you know work physically Mm -hmm. you know and i had to kind of change that to change to learn how to work more you know with my mind you know that's why me and my wife you know chose to start a different kind of business and stuff like that so you know something that how do we do that? How do we stay together as a family but accommodate injury? So, you know, some days I have really great days. You know, I can go out and and go for a walk with my son and my daughter. And you know, I, I ride a hand cycle recumbent bike that I got from a really cool organization in Pennsylvania. But there's other days where I'll spend hours in bed um, hooked up to a machine that just, you know, zaps my back just as high as I can get it because it's just so much pain. And just a couple of weeks ago, I told my wife, like, I'm going to go pretty much comatose for a day and a half. You know, I don't like taking medication. It makes me feel terrible. And I want to be a dad and I want to be present. So sometimes I just have to do it and get everything to calm back down. But yeah, injury had a big effect on my life. 
and on my mental health, you know, to the point where, it, I mean, it drove me to put a gun in my mouth. Kill myself. So these injuries, which you're still dealing with today. Oh, yeah. You were, you found yourself drinking and smoking again. Mm-hmm. You found yourself doing things that were really not you. Um, and it even drove you to put a gun in your mouth. What, what kept that from going through? One was the pursuit of my wife. That woman is very, very resilient. I mean, she's my best friend and she's smoking hot. Um, but, uh, (laughs) you know, um, she just don't take no for an answer. You know, if I got my feet up other than when I'm in a lot of pain, she's like, what are you doing with your life? Get up, go do something with your life. But was she there? She, uh, she was. Uh, I had just, you know, I was running a big warehouse for for a place out in San Diego and had I had like 15 anxiety attacks in a row. I just I couldn't stop them. And were you I, still drinking at this point, too? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I just, I I shut down the warehouse. I left. Nobody knew where I went. People were just calling and calling and calling. Like, they thought something had happened to me. For some reason, she had come home from school early that day. She was going to UCSD, and she saw me for, like, three minutes, and I was just breaking down, and I had just left. She was like, she just, she called one of her mentors, and she's like, this isn't normal. Like, he didn't take anything. He didn't take his clothes, and... We had gone through a, a long separation in the very beginning of our marriage because I was just a scumbag. But, um, you know, she's like, this is different. Like, he had no worth, you know, he didn't care about anything. He just left. And so she actually called, um, you know, Josh Lewis, and he was very blunt with her. And he went to go kill himself. So do something. You need to find him, you know, and it was a, a like an all-day process of her really trying to pursue me and just reaching out to every person she knew. She didn't care at that point, you know. She's like, this is what's happening. Like, we need to find him. And I just had a really um, just begging God, like, if you're real, show yourself because I hate you. And, you know, there's just a divine moment there that um, it just changed my life, you know? And now, you know, for the past four or five years, I've been a suicide prevention instructor, um, you know, learning different techniques with that, helping people in those moments. And I've actually had quite a few people, you know, in those moments, you know, be able to contact with them and help them through that specific time in their life you know it's very small but it's it's they can remember it very well to help them in that moment of of you know suicide's always a bad thing until boom one moment it's not it's your only decision that takes away all your pain and when suicide becomes a good thing that's when you really have a crisis on your hands you know and my wife you know she just People told her she was crazy. People told her she was making it up. People I mean, people told her a lot of dumb stuff. She didn't care. That woman, she's very tenacious. and just She's a wonderful woman, and she's a, 
a wonderful mom and a wonderful wife that has never given up on me. Even when I, you know, I have given up on myself quite a few times because of, you know, either pity me or just, I don't know what to do. I look forward to meeting her. She's, she's, she's awesome. So do you find yourself concerned about taking that final step about that one moment that you just described? you still feel like you have to guard against that? Oh, every day. Every day. Um, there's a lot of darkness in this world. You know, read read the news. Dear God, talk about depressing. You know what I mean? There's no good story on that. Crime after crime after crime, you know. Drive around some of the neighborhoods in Dallas. Like, you know, there's there's a lot of bad things that happen. It's like, but there's a lot of good things too, and you described it. I mean, that's, you know, what you described about your, you know, your dumb dumb uh, lollipops. Yeah, I mean that's that show that shows a good side that we just have to be conscious about. I think. Yeah, if you really don't focus on it, like, I think when you look at like good and bad, water always takes the easiest route, and I wouldn't naturally just assume bad is the easier route it's the more selfish route it's the more it's a tremendous metaphor it, it just I, I don't know i just yeah why does it happen that way you know why do you have so many greedy people versus you know a few people that are willing to give it, i think it's just human nature in general you know it's just like i said you know uh, the next generation is constantly being taught how do i screw six billion so i can get back on top and it's like, man, you know, if we would just, you know, work together a bit more, you know, look at the family unit, you know, I help my wife, my wife helps me, we help our children. I don't think that's the, I don't think that that's the, the majority. I really don't because I think they're just the louder ones. But yeah, I mean, I, 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 you know, there's, there's four people in this room and I've had enough interaction with all three of you. And I know myself to know that. It's not just happenstance that there's four people in the same room that are all pretty darn good people. And you can yeah. just tell that by conversations, by looking people in the eye. And so I'm, I'm pushing back on you a little bit there because it, you know, that sounds really negative and I get it. I mm -hmm. understand why, but I think it, it boils down to one thing and that is leadership. We lead one another where in, a, in our moments of weakness, we, exp I mean, you know, you described, you know, your, your wife and Josh, that interaction, Josh was a leader at that moment. He told Absolutely. her, he told her the thing that she, the last thing that she wanted to hear, but it was the thing she had to hear at that time. Absolutely. You know, and, and the truth can be offensive sometimes, you know, and it's sometimes we take that stance where it's like, I don't want to offend anybody. Well, okay. You know, like, you know, if, if, Peacemaking and peacekeeping is two different things. You know, to make peace with somebody is you really have to go out and and give of yourself. Give something that, you know, usually they don't deserve and they can never repay you back for. You know, where where peacekeeping is just kinda of like how do you, you know, keep circling the bowl kind of thing. So yeah, I would definitely agree. Like, but I mean, you look at the world, you know, you look at the news. Why do they follow bad stuff all the time because it's easy it it makes money you know when you when you hear a good story it's like oh well, where's the other 100 bad stories you know and so you know naturally i think just where your mind goes and 
obviously, you know, like I have nightmares almost every night. You know, I wake up in hot sweats and cold sweats and, you know, I wake up just stressed out and my heart's racing and all kinds of stuff. And it's like, it's just easy to carry on my day that way. You know, it's easy just to be short tempered with my children, with my wife, because I'm not getting what I want. But in return, like you said, you know, you turn around and, and you look at what real life is and you say like, wow, look at all these neighborhoods and most of these houses have families in them. They're working hard. They're striving to take care of one another. They're trying to be in community and all that stuff. And really like I have to get out of this giant bubble and just go back to my own. I just have to go back to being content in my life and, and saying, where can I have most effect? You know, same thing on the battlefield. Where do I have most effect? You know, I, I can't treat a hundred people. I can't. I don't have the capabilities, but I can treat one person really well. And then I can go to the next one and treat them real well. Go to the next one, treat them real well. And, you know, that's the white, you know, that's the stance that me and my wife have taken when we go out and, you know, display generosity, you know, because we want to do that with our children and show them like, Hey, you know, this is, this is what life is about, you know, being in community and relationship with one another and loving people as you would love yourself. You know, how do I, how do I do that? I'll eat the same food that that I eat, you know, and, and treat you the same way that I would treat my children and, and stuff like that, you know? And so, yeah, I, w- I would definitely agree with you. I don't think it's, I don't think the despair is the norm, but man, is it easy to follow? That's it, it's so well said. Yeah. And again, the metaphor of, of the water, I, I just, I mean, you just blew me away with that. Yeah. So I want to, I want to ask you one more thing before we get to our final question. Um, if you were to describe to somebody, I, I want you to take yourself out of your own body and I want you to be, you know, looking at yourself from a different, uh, angle. How would you describe yourself to somebody today versus your deepest, darkest moment when you had the barrel of a pistol in your I would use the word restored to, so when you look at something that's restored, it was once established, it was broken down and then brought back into something new and usually better. And I feel really blessed in the fact that I've been able to go through that process and know that I kind of just came from like a loser punk kid that you know, had everything in life. There was no issues. I had my hard times. My parents divorced and bullied in high school. What, you know, however you want to go through that. Went through some really hard stuff. You know, went to my lowest moment in life. And then coming back out of that, seeing just my marriage be restored, being able to become a father. I've always wanted to be a dad. Being able to become a father, being able to help people in their some of their worst moments in life, being in a position to be able to give freely to people that need help, being able to just be a part of organizations that want to go out and educate on things that are are valuable, that, that bring purpose back to us. All of that, you know, I would go back to, to I'm a restored human being because I, went and sought the help of people who are, are genuinely want to help and, and be a part of that life 
step away from that selfish lifestyle for a second and come back in and say, okay, how do I become selfless and help others while I'm getting help? Because I needed a lot of it. I've seen a lot of doctors, both for physical and mental. And I know it was always, it was always just a beautiful benefit of that. So. I love that word, restored. Yeah. That is, man, you have given me some incredible nuggets, and I really really appreciate your candor on so many fronts as you are very aware carry the load is about restoring the true meaning of memorial day and we want to make sure that we are honoring those who made the ultimate sacrifice um sometimes that sacrifice happens in the line of duty sometimes it happens as a result of the line of duty. Is there anyone that you carry with you today? Yeah, it's a, a young man at the time. His name was Hunter Levine. I'm pretty sure he was a Houston native. He was a young PFC infantryman, you know, believed in something and, and went out there. And unfortunately he was pretty traumatically hurt. He was uh, blinded and, had a lot of um, trauma to his face and the upper body, and he was medically retired from the military, and Purple Heart, and just just a stand-up young kid, you know, just just a goofy young man that just had a lot a lot of life to live, you know. Unfortunately, some of those um, wounds, you know, he succumbed to them. It was uh, it was a part of life. It was his journey and. You know, I just, you know, with his family to be listening or something, I would just love to thank them that his, that their, their son gave up his life for me and my family to live in some very, very good freedom. Hunter Levine, thank you for sharing that. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for asking. Nathan, this has been a pleasure, man. Absolutely, yeah. I've had a lot of fun. Yeah, it's a emotional roller coaster, but good things I like it. it it's healing to me you know I'm glad we can share in those things Brother.